0: Well, it's always a joy to bring the Word to you, to continue in our worship as we hear from God's Word and open it up and have it explained and applied to our hearts. We are getting towards the end of uh, Ecclesiastes, the book of wisdom, a book that helps us to live a more godly life, helps us to grow in our grace and our wisdom like Christ, even as He grew as a child, He grew in grace, He grew in wisdom, it says, in the Gospel of Luke. And we want to be like Him. We want to grow as Christians. We want to grow in our wisdom and in our grace as we live out the Christian life. We are in Ecclesiastes 9 this morning, finishing out the chapter. Ecclesiastes 9, 10 through 18. And we're looking at the subject of redeeming the time. Solomon's advice here on redeeming the time. Remember, In Ecclesiastes, he's told us multiple times that life is a vapor. It's Hevel. It's quick. It's over fast. It's a mist. We're here one day. We're gone the next. And so we need to get living in a way that pleases the Lord. You've probably heard it said you could get to living or you can get to dying. Well, as Christians, we want to live with the view that death is coming at any moment. But we want to live now as best we can for the Lord. And some people look at this book and they say, you know, there's no use. If we're going to die, there's really no use. If we don't even know when our death is, then there's no use to live for today. But God's Word says there is a purpose. There is a reason. There's a lot to live for now. And the whole book is really about living in the fear of God. Living, we wouldn't say your best life now like some people do, but living your best godly life now. Instead of saying, I'll get to it someday. So Ecclesiastes nine ten through 18. Let me read it to you. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there's no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift. And the battle is not to the warriors. And neither is bread to the wise. Nor wealth to the discerning. Nor favor to men of ability. For time and events, the, the text says chance, but it really should be events, overtake them all. Moreover, man does not know his time, like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Also this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with a few men in it, and a great king came to it. Surrounded it and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, Wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise, heard in quietness, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner. Destroys much good. How much time have we wasted in our lives? How much time have we just flitted away throughout our lives? As an unbeliever, before we were saved, much of our time was spent working for ourselves, or we were working for the world, or we were working for the devil. Wasted time. Time that doesn't really mean anything to the Lord's work, to the Lord's purposes. And even as a Christian, even as somebody who's been regenerated, even as somebody who has a new heart, we often go back into those time wasters, whether it be outright sin or distractions or entanglements, things that tie us down, things that keep us from living a godly life. We like to throw away our time into things that are not gifts from God, that are not things that God desires us to do. I looked up some statistics And you've probably heard these. The average American wastes much of their life on smartphones and TV. How many hours on a smartphone per day? Average American, three hours per day. Watching TV, three hours and 17 minutes. And that's not on your smartphone. So six hours a day, just absorbing content to entertain it. Now, granted, smartphone use might be work, but regardless... Most Americans are staring at a screen five to six hours every day. Other people waste time running into sinful lusts, sexual immorality, pornography, alcohol, drugs, partying, chasing their favorite idol, whether it's money, work, whatever it is, power, possessions. Just wasting your time chasing something that you shouldn't be that focused on. And really, we've dealt with that throughout Ecclesiastes. Solomon told us his own struggles as he ran after these idols. And he says in the end, they were just a waste of time, a waste of effort. They were fleeting. You couldn't even catch them. About the time you think you had one of those idols, it escaped your grasp. But we're not called to live like that. We're not called to live like the world. We're not called to live like somebody who's always chasing after something else and wasting our time. We are followers of Christ. We're called to live for Christ. We're called to live for him. And whatever his word tells us to do, we ought to do. That's the main thing that we should be chasing after. The Lord's will. In Ephesians 5.16, Paul says it like this. Therefore, be careful how you walk, how you go about life, how you live. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. You see, He's talking about wisdom. Have discernment. Think about the way you're living. Think about the way you're walking through life. And the first piece of advice he gives is making the most of your time Because the days are evil. We live in evil days. We have lived in evil days, as mankind has lived in evil days since the fall. But they're getting, it seems like, more and more evil, doesn't it? More and more evil. More accessible to get evil. You could pull up evil in a second on a smartphone. And Paul says, redeem the time because the days are evil. Rather than falling asleep, rather than drifting into sin, wake up. He says, and redeem the time. Direct your attention on how to walk. Don't be foolish or unwise. The door is open for opportunities. All those things are built in the passage in Ephesians. But you may not have realized that Solomon here at the end of chapter 9 is saying the same thing. Ecclesiastes nine ten through 18 is basically saying the same thing, except he opens it up a bit more and he gives us some specific advice, some wisdom on how to redeem the time." Christians have to be extremely careful how we spend our time because God has only given us so much time and that's all we have. So every minute counts. Not that you ought to live life always stressed out. Not that you ought to live life always worried that you're not spending every single minute the way that God would want. But rather know your Bible and live it out. Know your Bible, as Augustine said, and do whatever you please. That sounds dangerous, doesn't it? Do whatever you please. But what he means is, if you know your Bible, and you do what the Bible says, then you can make choices within that range, and it's all considered godly. Solomon's advice on redeeming the time. There's three main points, and the last one will open up a bit more this morning. So three parts, three pieces of advice on redeeming the time. First of all, a subject he's already touched on, work hard while you can. He's talked a lot about work. He's talked about how if you work too much, it's for nothing. He talked about the guy who can't sleep because he's so concerned about work and money. But there is good to work. And he says, work hard while you can. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, with all your strength, with all your power is the point here. There's only so much time we have to do the work that God has given us to do. There is only so much time. So do, he says, what your hand finds to do. The word finds here in Hebrew means an opportunity. You're looking around at things to do and you find an opportunity. Now, it's nice if that's something you really desire, something you like. Sometimes we don't always get that choice. We have to do other jobs until we find the thing that we like or an opportunity opens up. But whatever the opportunity that presents itself that you desire to do, do it and work hard at it. Work hard, he says. You only have so much time before it all ends. Before you go into the grave, give your work as much as you can. Now, you have to temper this advice with other things that he said. Don't be a workaholic. Don't make it an idol. Don't steal from your family. Don't steal from your time with the Lord. But when you are working, work hard. Don't kill yourself. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying excel. Whatever opportunity presents itself, whatever you find to do. Sometimes as Christians, we don't understand God's providence. So we say, I'm not going to do anything outside the norm. I'm not going to push myself until the Lord tells me what to do. He's got to make it obvious. He's got to speak to me. We almost... We almost think that the clouds will part and a voice will come out of heaven saying, take this job, marry this person, go to this school. That's not how it works. Read your Bible, know it really well, and make godly decisions, discernment, use discernment as you go about life. And you will do the opportunities that open up for you. And they will be a godly thing if you work hard at them. You can't be lazy. But know God's word and obey it and get busy living life. You're not going to get special revelation on everything throughout life. The Bible is your revelation, and it doesn't have your specific name in it, unless you were named after one of the people in the Bible. But still, that's not you. Know the Bible, make godly decisions, get to work. That's how we live a wise life. Jesus understood that we only had so much time. He only had so much time in his ministry. In John 9, 4, he said, We must work the works of him, that's God, who sent me, as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. He told his disciples, get busy working. You have a job. He sent them out as preachers. He sent them out as church planters after that. He said, get busy. See, often we think work is a curse. We think work itself is a curse because maybe you don't like your job. Maybe your job can be really hard at times. Maybe we'd rather be doing something else. The Bible never calls work a curse. It says that work is cursed because of sin, meaning it will be harder, meaning there'll be thorns and thistles. You're still called to work. It's still a good thing. Adam worked in the garden before sin, before the fall. But it got much harder, didn't it? After the fall. As Christians, we are called to work hard for the Lord. Not for ourselves. Not for our own monuments, our own treasure, our own temple that we're building for ourselves. But for the Lord. Go with me to the New Testament, to the book of Colossians. So save your spot in Ecclesiastes. Go to Colossians chapter 3 and we see this principle there pretty much everything you find in ecclesiastes is repeated in the new testament with slightly different language it's almost as if it's the same author of this whole book as if god wrote it from the beginning to the end colossians 3:17 whatever you do in word or deed so whether you're doing something like as in your work or serving the church or things that you say you're going to do do all in the name of the lord jesus Giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Keep your word. Do what you say you're going to do. Work hard for the Lord. He opens this up more down in verse 23 and 24. Colossians 3:23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. You're not to be a man pleaser. You're to be a Lord pleaser, a God pleaser. You're pleasing the Lord. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Work hard for the Lord. If you're a Christian, that's what you're doing. You're working hard for the Lord. And that helps you in your day-to-day life and your decisions. Do I take this promotion or not? What's this going to do? Is it going to plot me in the middle of nowhere where there's not a church? Is this going to interrupt my family? If you're working from home, if you're a mom at home, serve the Lord. I mean, you have an important task. Raising children is a vital task. Many people have neglected that in our country, and our world today. And that's caused problems. Kids are raised doing and believing what they want. Disciple your children. Evangelize your children. That's working for the Lord. When you serve in ministry, when you serve the church, when you serve other people in the church, work for the Lord, not for praises. Don't serve someone in the church just to get a pat on the back, to have leadership say, good job. Don't do it for that reason. Primarily do it for the Lord. You see, work is a stewardship from God. We're tasked to work for the glory of God, to work with all our might. Yes, it's going to be hard at times. There's going to be times we don't like to work. There's going to be things we're asked to do that we don't like, that are hard, that are difficult, that stress us out. But work for the Lord. That's who you're serving. Don't be a workaholic. Don't say, well, the pastor said I've got to work. The Bible says I've got to work. So I'm going to go work 60, 80, 100 hours. Don't do that. That'll just kill you. That'll put you in an early grave. There were even some famous pastors who worked too hard and put themselves in an early grave. Yes, all in God's providence, but they themselves often said they were working too much, going too hard, not eating right, and they died in their early 50s. Work with all your might. He's saying don't be lazy here. Don't slack off. God's gifted everyone with a natural ability at work to do something. Strive in that. And if you don't know what that is, then keep looking around. Keep trying new things until you find something that you like. Kind of like the person who says, I don't like my town. There's no church there. And you should ask them, are there signs and highways in your town? Can you follow those highways to get out of your town and move to a different town? We often think, well, I'm just stuck. I'm stuck in my job. There's nothing I can do. And that might be the case for a time. Keep finding opportunities. Keep looking around. Keep looking for other things that you might enjoy, that you can do, that the Lord opens the door for. Paul didn't say, you know, I'm just going to be a tent maker my whole life. There's nothing, oh God, there's nothing else I can do. Peter didn't say, I'm just bound to fish all my life. He did some fishing even after he was saved. But the Lord opened doors. Whatever it is that you're doing, excel at it, work hard at it, strive to do it well. This might mean you got to learn new things. Take extra courses. Read some books on your field. Keep up with new technology. Do things outside your comfort zone that are still godly, of course. Don't just sit around and complain about life, your circumstances. Solomon says, get to work because there's a day coming. Look, he says, there's a day coming when no activity can be done. No planning, no knowledge, no wisdom can be done. Sheol, the place of the grave, the place of darkness. He says, that's where we're all going. We're all going to the grave. He's not saying that there's no life after death. He's not saying there's no heaven, there's no hell. He's just saying from our under the sun perspective, from this life's view, work hard for the Lord now because there's a time when that work is going to stop. We could even go to the New Testament and say, there's a time when Christ will reward believers for the work that they did that was for his glory. So work hard now because you don't get a second chance at life. There's no opportunity to work after this life has passed, after your body's in the grave. Commentator Walt Kaiser says there's time to labor for God while we are still on this side of the grave. For when death comes, the day of opportunity will have passed. It's gone. You have a window right now of time in your life. What are you doing with it? What are you doing particularly in the field of your efforts, your work, your deeds? Are you excelling? Are you doing everything you do for the glory of God? Secondly here, he says, remember, time is running out. Verses 11 and 12 tell us time is running out. Now, we all know this. There's a time in your younger years where you realize everyone's going to die at some point. But we tend to forget it. We tend to be distracted. We can even focus on work so much that we don't think about the fact that our time is running out. And he's mentioned this a few times, hasn't he? It's one of the major themes in Ecclesiastes, that death is coming. Prepare yourself in this life for it. And here he says, once again, time is running out. Again, he says, I saw under the sun, under the sun, life on earth. He looked around. He's not teaching us about the afterlife. There are other books that do that. He's teaching us about practical wisdom in this life. Again, I saw under the sun. I looked around. And what did he see? That the race is not to the swift. Sometimes the fastest person in the race doesn't win. Sometimes the person who's working the fastest messes up and doesn't get the job done the right way. The battle is not to the warriors. Sometimes the strongest, mightiest army doesn't win the battle. You can go throughout history of the world and see that over and over again. Smaller forces beating larger forces. Neither is bread to the wise. Sometimes the wisest people have to go through struggles, tribulations, trials, where they don't even have enough to eat, nor wealth to the discerning. You would think the wisest people would be the wealthiest people, but it's often the opposite, isn't it? Why is that? Why is it that favor doesn't come to men of ability? He's reminding us, look, the world is shaken up. Since the fall, things don't work out like we would want them to, like we think they ought to. Like it says in Genesis 1 and 2, everything was good. But since then, sin has come into the world, and things don't work out always like we think they should. Of course, God has a plan for all of it. And really, we could turn each one of these around and say, it's not to the swift, but it's to the one who trusts in the Lord. The battle is not to the warriors, but as 1 Samuel seventeen forty seven says, the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's. The battle belongs to the Lord. It's not to the wisest person in the world that gets all the food and money. If you're truly wise according to God's scriptures, according to God's plan, then you may be a poor person. And we'll get to some reasons why as we go through this text. For time and chance overtake them all. Now, I said in the reading that chance isn't the best word here. It's come up a few times in Ecclesiastes. Chance brings to the modern mind that no one's in control. In fact, you even hear scientists saying it's by chance that people came into being, that the universe happened. And R.C. Sproul has a very high-minded philosophical book on chance. But Sproul says, look, chance is nothing. It's no thing. It's just a mathematical term that speaks of probability. But people have taken it and spoken of chance as some force out there. There's a God named chance. And in fact, the ancients believed that. A God named fate. And so I think we should move away from that kind of language as Christians. We shouldn't talk about luck. We shouldn't talk about fate. Let's just stop using the word luck and lucky. If God's in control of everything, is there really such a thing as lucky in your life? Christians should do away with that word or be careful how we use it at least. He's simply saying, look, time... Progresses on in our life and events happen. The word here is events or or happenings. Things just happen in your life. Not by chance, by God's providence, but they happen because we don't see them coming. They surprise us. Things just happen in our life and it doesn't matter if you're the fastest runner, the strongest warrior, the wisest person. Things just happen in your life. It doesn't work out the way we want. Time passes by, time passes by, and then We die. In fact, in the hymn, we sometimes sing this hymn here. Oh God, our help in ages past by Isaac Watts. You know that line? Time is like an ever-flowing stream bears all its sons away. Time takes everyone away. Everyone dies and is gone. And he's simply saying life is unpredictable. You don't know what's coming next. You don't know, Solomon says, what's coming next. But God is in control. Over and over, he says, fear God in this book. Over and over, he says, trust God. And then he tells us, what we see on this earth doesn't make sense to us. It's gone. It's like a vapor. It comes and goes so fast. And we struggle because we want to control our life and we want to do what we think is best. But he's just implying here, look, God is in control. God is in control. Trust him. Do what he says. Sometimes we're frozen by uncertainty. We, we don't know what's coming next, so it freezes us. We're scared. Can't make a decision because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. What's going to happen with inflation? What's going to happen with the stock market? What's going to happen with the president? What kind of law is he going to make that we don't like or we like? We better not do anything. We better not even buy groceries to see what happens for the next few weeks. It won't last very long. You don't know what's coming. The point here is do what God says and leave the results to him. Just focus on your life every day, doing what you're supposed to do, knowing the Bible so you live your life in godly ways and leave the results to God. Stop worrying about it because time and events overtake them all. And he continues in verse 12. Moreover, man does not know his time. We don't even know how much time we have. None of us do. We forget how little time we have. We kind of realize, look, the average age is 79, 80 years old. But then we forget about it. That's in the future. You know, that's 30, 40, 20, 10 years, whatever. Some of you have exceeded that. Praise the Lord. But we don't know the time that we have. And we often think we have all the time in the world. We have all the time in the world. But as Christians, we can't be fooled. Time's running out. Man does not know the time, but we should think about it. We should think about what's coming in our life. We should think about death. And he gives a comparison here with the fishing and hunting world. Like fish caught in a treacherous net. Literally the word is evil here. Calamitous. The net catches the fish. The fish doesn't want to be caught, but he's caught anyway. And birds trapped in a snare. The bird doesn't desire to be caught in a snare, but he is caught. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly Falls on them. Sounds very much like Paul in Ephesians. Make the most of your time because the days are evil. In other words, don't let the evil days trap you and distract you and pull you away from making the most of your time. Same message as Solomon says here. Don't be a fish that's caught in a net. You're going to be anyway because circumstances in life will trap you, but make wise decisions. Know that that's out there. Be a realist in this sense. There's evil in the world. I'm not going to be shocked when evil happens. And I'm going to be cautious and perceptive and live my life in a godly way. Because only God knows what's going to happen. Even if you're the wisest person in the world. Solomon, for example, he did not know what was going to happen the next day of his life. He could not predict what was going to happen in 10 or 20 years or after his death. And so he's saying here, events, circumstances trap you like a fish or a bird. Don't let that frustrate you. It's going to happen. There's going to be things in life that press on you. But it's for a reason. God's doing something there. In fact, Psalm 66, verse 10, reads like this. For you have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. Who brought them into the net? God. God put them in the net. You laid an oppressive burden upon our loins. You made men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. For the Christian you're not going to get out of the circumstances of life. But you know something that the rest of the people in the world don't. You know that God has put that net around you and that on the other side of it, there's abundance. Not necessarily money, food, or possessions. But there is some blessing that he's going to do through that trial, through that circumstance, through that event. God is in control of the net. So remember the net's there. Remember the snares are there. And when you get entangled in them, remember that God is the one who provides the way out, and that God is the one who blesses on the exit, on the way out. So we went through the first couple really quick. The last one is a little bit longer because he tells a parable. Number three, see wisdom for what it is. See wisdom for what it is. So work hard while you can. Remember times running out and see wisdom for what it is. Sometimes we think, well, if I can just be a perfectly godly person in this life, which is not possible, by the way, but sometimes we think if I could just be more godly, I won't have any trouble in life. Everyone will listen to me, everyone will just flock to me for advice. My life will be easy, all my problems will go away, nothing will be wrong. If I just memorize the whole Bible and do everything it says, my life will be perfect. Is that true? No, we just read about the circumstances in life, and Solomon is saying, Be realistic here about wisdom and the rest of this passage. Wisdom is worth obtaining, especially godly wisdom. But we need to be realists about wisdom. We can't pretend that we can be perfect, or even if we knew all things in the Bible, there will still be challenges in life. Just because we get wisdom and use it wisely does not mean that all our problems will be over. So he tells a parable to explain this, starting in verse 13. Also this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. He saw something. He learned something. He gained some more wisdom. And, and this thing that he learned was great. Literally, not impressed, but great. Heavy upon him. This is a big lesson in life that he's about to tell us. Multiple ones, really. Verse 14, he tells a mini parable, a small parable. There was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. So there's a man in a city. A few men, it says. Just a few men. It's not a very large city. A little town. And here comes the king that's mighty. With a mighty fortress. With a mighty army. And he comes up and he surrounds it. It's interesting here, the word for siege works. It's the same word for net back in verse 12. In other words, the king has the city trapped. Like fish caught in a net. The king has surrounded the city. No one's getting out. Everyone is going to perish. Everyone will be destroyed. But, verse 15 There was found in it a poor, wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. He saved the city. He saved many lives. We're not told how he did it. We're not told if he did it politically, if he did it strategically, if he negotiated something. But this little, unknown, poor man, who has no money, meaning no power, was the wisest man in the city, and he saved the city's life okay, Solomon, what is that all about? How does that help us gain any knowledge and wisdom? Well, he finishes here by saying, no one remembered that poor man. The city owed its survival to him, and no one remembered him. Not only did they not know his name, but they didn't even remember what he had done. There's no honor given to him, he's saying. And the city was small, he tells us, meaning there's only a few people there. It's not like it would have been hard to know who this guy was. There's only a few men in the whole city. And they still forgot his name? Well, that shouldn't surprise us. If we go back in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, go back to chapter 2, verse 16. And he told us this was a frustrating thing about the world in the very beginning that he found frustrating in 2.16. For there's no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. And as much as in the coming days, all will be forgotten. It's frustrating because everyone is forgotten. You could say, only the names recorded in the Bible are the ones to be remembered, because after that, who can really remember? Who was your great-grandparents? What were their names? How about your great-great-grandparents? What was their first name? Middle name. When were they born? Where'd they come from? You've forgotten. And here's a guy that did a great thing, and he's forgotten. Now Solomon may have heard about, he may have witnessed this actual thing. There's a story in 2 Samuel chapter 20 where David is sending out an army. And something very similar to this parable happens. David sends an army out to chase this rebellious leader named Sheba. Sheba had seen an opportunity, so he rebelled against King David. And as soon as David sends the army, Sheba runs off to the north. And he ends up in this city named Abel-Beth-Makkah. And he's hiding out. And David's army surrounds him. Joab, the general of David's army, surrounds him, traps him in the city. And in ancient times, you don't send a small force in to find the one guy. You just destroy the whole city. So the city understands that they're all about to die because of this one man. And this, what the text says, a wise woman. This is 2 Samuel 20. A wise woman comes up on the wall of the city to talk to David's general, Joab. And she says, why are you destroying God's people? I'm part of Israel We're all part of Israel. You're going to kill us? These poor women in the city? And he tells her why he's there. He tells her what he's doing. And she proposes a deal. The city will execute this guy and throw his head over the wall. Will you leave then? And Joab says, sure, we'll leave. Throw his head over. We know what he looks like. And the Bible says, Then the woman wisely came to all the people. Wisely. She had wisdom. She came to all the people. The city performed capital punishment, you could say, on this rebel, this insurrectionist, and saved the city. Now, there's a lot of names in the Bible. There's a lot of names in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. You know whose name's not there? This wise woman who came up with this plan to save all those people in that town. Her name's not there. So Solomon had experience with a real-life example. Okay, so what does the parable teach us? Just like the New Testament, anytime Jesus says a parable, we want to ask, what's the point? Solomon has four points here. Uh, We don't have to guess. You'll read lots of commentaries and things about the Bible, and they make all kinds of guesses and silly things. We don't even have to guess. He tells us in the next few verses four conclusions from this little parable. Four conclusions about wisdom. We got to see wisdom for what it is. So first of all, he says wisdom is superior to power. Talk about contrary to the world. Wisdom is better than strength, he says. First part of verse 16. Wisdom is superior to strength. That is so contrary to the world. In the world, you get as much power as you can get, and you look for every opportunity to gain more power, whether it's over your spouse whether it's in your work, whether it's in government. Power is the thing that people crave. And he says, look, wisdom is better than that. People with power and might think they have control over all things. But people who are wise actually have more power from a godly sense. If you're, for example, wise in the ways of God, you have a spiritual power that God has given you and is working through you in the Holy Spirit. We could even get more practical and just say, you know, this king, he had the city wrapped up tight. Nobody's getting out of that city. What happened? A wise man. A wise man thwarted the king's siege. Wisdom, Solomon says, is better than strength. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Talk about a comparison of wisdom. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the whole chapter, is a comparison of the world's wisdom with godly wisdom. And this is the best example on how wisdom is better, is superior to power, to the world's way of thinking. 2 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 6. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. So Paul says, the world thinks we're silly. The world thinks we're foolish. But we do speak wisdom. Only the people who understand it are those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age. The rulers, the ones with the power, the ones with the authority. We have a wisdom, but it's not like the wisdom of this age, not like the rulers of this age, who are passing away. Those rulers are passing away. That power will be gone someday. And Paul says, we're focusing on the right kind of wisdom. We speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Look, the world's got its own wisdom. And part of that is to seek more power and might and strength. And the rulers thought they could thwart God's plan. They thought they could stop God's plan. But God predestined it before the ages to our glory. God predestined all these things to happen. Christ to come. Christ to die on the cross All the believers that would eventually believe in Christ. He predestined all of that. And in verse 8 he says, The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. None of the rulers understood, he said. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If the world was truly wise, they wouldn't have killed Christ. But he said that sin shows you how unwise the world is. How much they crave power. They thought they could kill the king of the Jews and have their way. They did exactly as God predestined them to do. Bookmark 2 Corinthians, we're coming back there. So Solomon says wisdom is superior to power because the poor wise man saved the city over this mighty, strong king. Second part of verse 16, the world will reject wisdom. Now, if you're living a godly life, if you're a Christian and you've ever said anything wise to, something, to somebody else, you realize... Often the world rejects that. They don't want to hear it. Or they think it's foolish. Or they laugh. And he says here, But the wisdom of the poor man is despised. And his words are not heeded. So we get the idea that the poor wise man saved the city on his own. Nobody would listen to him. He did something himself to save all those people. And even afterwards, people aren't even going to listen to him. He was so wise. He saves the city. No one wants to listen to him. His words are not heeded. They're not listened to. They're not obeyed. People often don't want to listen to wisdom. They don't even want to respect wisdom. You try to give somebody godly wisdom. You try to, maybe it's practical like in Proverbs. Maybe it's to do with their sanctification, with their salvation. And it's often rejected, certainly by unbelievers. And sometimes even believers don't want to listen to godly wisdom. Don't throw the Bible at me, they'll say. Why are you hitting me over the head with the Bible? You're always quoting verses. You're always preaching so much from the Bible. Can't we just tell jokes up here? Stories? Can't we make people laugh? make people feel good. Sometimes the text makes us feel good and sometimes it challenges us. We're going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Why won't the world listen to us when we have godly wisdom, things that are in the Bible, whether it's to do with their job, whether it's to do with family, children, whether it's to do with Christ? Why won't they listen? 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. So if you're saved, you have the Spirit of God and He gives you something, many things, one of which is godly wisdom. Verse 13, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So the Spirit teaches us. Now we have all those teachings recorded here. If you're a believer, you still have the Spirit. He points us to the text. He confirms the truth of the text in our hearts. But look at verse 14. But a natural man, an unbeliever, a worldly man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He doesn't accept them. Foolishness, that's the opposite of wisdom. To be a fool is the opposite of being wise. Why don't people listen when we try to give them something from Scripture, or even a concept, or even a theology that we've learned there? The natural man doesn't accept it. He doesn't want to, is what the text is saying. Because of total depravity, he doesn't want to. And he can't even do it. It continues here. Paul says he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. When you say something that is godly, you don't even have to attach a verse to it. You don't even have to attach God's name to it. You just say a truth out of the Bible and put it in your own words. People still reject it. Why? Because you have to have the Holy Spirit to truly accept and understand spiritual things. So it doesn't matter. You you can quote a verse or speak the truth and not quote the verse. People still don't want to hear it. That's why these silly things about evangelism where you, you try to set the Bible aside, never mention it, and go somewhere else, entertainment, fun, games, and think that that's somehow going to draw people to Christ, it doesn't work. Because sooner or later, you're going to have to come to the truth, and they're going to reject it. The world will reject wisdom, Solomon says. The wise man, the poor man, he was despised. No one listened to him. Can you think of another poor man, a man that had nothing that was very wise, that the world hated? Can you think of somebody who said he didn't even have a place to live? He had to live with other people in their homes. He didn't even have his own den like the foxes do. Matthew thirteen fifty-seven. He went to his own hometown. They took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown and his own household. They rejected him. They thought he was the most foolish, silly guy they had ever heard. Because they knew him growing up, and he couldn't be the son of God. He couldn't be all that he said. So he came to synagogue. They asked him to read. He read from Isaiah, told him that talked about him. They rejected him. They went to throw him off the cliff, and something happened where they just froze, and he walked right through the crowd and left. They hated him. That's why you need to know if you're a Christian, the world is going to hate what you speak when you speak of Christ, when you speak of the Bible. Don't be surprised. Solomon's telling us in the Old Testament. Paul's telling us in the New Testament, don't be surprised. When you start saying that Christ has changed my life, that he died on the cross for me, that he died for sinners, that he changed my heart, that he redeemed me, and now I can have eternal life. And while my life is still a challenge, while I still have circumstances and events happen, and I'm still going to die, I have something else to look forward to. And the world's going to say, that's foolishness. Foolishness. They hated Jesus. And we think today that we can outdo Jesus, that we can somehow draw people better than Jesus did. Number three, verse 17, Solomon says, Wisdom with gentleness is received better. Wisdom with gentleness is received better. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Believers are called throughout the Bible to be gentle when they speak. And he's just saying, if you're wise... And you're speaking wisdom. Be gentle. Yeah, there's lots of people who can shout and get the crowd going. You can act all passionate and basically say nothing as you're speaking. We've all known people like that. They seem so passionate, but you can't make sense of a thing they're saying. And he's saying, look, be gentle. Be calm. Be quiet. Now, there are times to get excited and passionate. But if you're always passionate and always excited and shouting about everything, then people are just going to tune you out. And the fools will listen because the fools like shouting. They get excited about it. Solomon says, Proverbs 15.1, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You want to stir somebody up? Just start yelling. That'll stir them up. Don't do that as a Christian. Philippians 4.5, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. God's sending Christ back soon. Be gentle. 1 Thessalonians 2.7, But we prove to be gentle among you, Paul says, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. A mom taking care of her little newborn. That's how we're supposed to care for others. Now, there's a time to get upset when somebody sins. When somebody truly sins. There's a time to raise your voice. You want me to get passionate up here and raise my voice sometimes. When your child is running into the road, there's a time to raise your voice. But in general, throughout your life, you need to be one who's calm and quiet when you're speaking wisdom, not shouting. Not shouting. A pastor and elder. Is the Lord's bondservant, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all. Able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Gentleness. There was a famous pastor a few years ago. He had a big fall, and then they brought him into the really heretical denomination, the NAR, I think it's called, New Apostolic Reformation. But he was famous amongst Reformed people. And he would just get up there and start yelling and cussing. And he drew thousands of people thousands of people. And he was just yelling and screaming as he preached. And the young guys really liked that, so they flocked to the church. And then soon you found out the guy abused people in the church, and that he was sinning, and that he was wicked, and that he was lying. And the church basically fired him. And the church planting group that he started fired him. He was the president of a worldwide church planting group, and they fired him. And then he popped back up amongst the apostolic reformation, which is not apostolic and not a reformation. But he was always shouting, And people liked him for a time. Maybe the fools still do. Number four, verse 18. Wisdom cannot overcome bad company. This is critical for all of us, especially the young people in the room, but all of us. He says, Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Wisdom is better than all the strength and all the power that this king had. But if you have one sinner mixed in to all these wise people, he can destroy much good. He can undo the good things that are being done. Now, when you read the word sinner in the Bible, don't think, well, we're all sinners, so he's talking about all of us. Believers sin. And sometimes today we call ourselves sinners, but the Bible doesn't use the term sinner to talk about somebody who's saved. The Bible talks about believers who sin. A sinner, you remember when they came to Jesus and they say, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? In that context, the sinner was the sexual immoral. And tax collectors were also in that bad category. But here in the Old Testament, a sinner is somebody who does whatever they want. They don't care about God. Irregardless of what God's Word said, they do what they want. They sin against God. They transgress the law. And he's saying, look, be careful who your friends are. Be careful who your close associates are. Be careful who you spend your time around, because one sinner can undo much good, even good that you do or want to do. Solomon wrote about this in Proverbs, Proverbs thirteen twenty. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Oh, I'm a Christian. I'm okay. I, I can hang around those people. My friends from my old life that all they wanted to do was run into sin. I've got the Holy Spirit now. I'm just a Christian for a month or a year, a couple of years, five years. I can go back and hang around them all the time. Jesus did that, didn't he? Jesus hung around sinners and tax collectors. He did, but he didn't move in with them. He didn't hang out with them 24-7. He went to eat when they invited him, and it was for a purpose. What was that purpose? To evangelize them. To tell them the gospel. We're not just to go hang out and accept the things of the world into our life. 1 Corinthians five eleven. I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, if he's an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunker, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. It's even worse if it's a so-called brother who lives like that, or sister. Because now you're telling them, everything's fine with us. We have a perfect relationship still, even though you're living in sin and everybody knows it. 1 Corinthians 15, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. Sometimes we think that doesn't sound very Christian. But there it is in our Christian Bible, isn't it? Because it's true. Being a Christian means having wisdom. And when you are around somebody that is running into sin like that, You love them. You care for them. But you don't say, you know what? I I just want to hang out with you all the time. I want to go places where you go and do the things you do. No, we have to be very strategic when we're speaking and being with sinners. And be on guard. We love them. We evangelize them. We welcome them into our homes at times. But we don't go and live their lifestyle with them. Or let them draw us into it. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness, and lawlessness. Oh, what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Balio? And what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Jesus hung out with sinners, and they came and repented. They fell down at his feet. They, they washed his feet with tears. They were changed by him. So if we're going to do that, we need to preach the gospel to them. We need to evangelize them like Jesus did. But don't think that you're so wise that no matter who you hang around, it won't have any effect on you. Solomon says, be careful with that. That's not wisdom. See what wisdom really is. Let's pray now that God would work in our lives to make us more wise and more holy like we've seen in this text this morning. Lord, we do ask that you would give us wisdom. Sometimes wisdom is not what the world enjoys from us. They they actually hate it. Sometimes even some professing Christians and Christian groups will say that we're being legalistic when we're just trying to follow the Bible. Sometimes we'll even hear things, Lord, in your Bible that, that are an offense to a mature believer. But we need to overcome our own flesh by your Spirit's power and agree with your word and follow your word and accept it as true. Because it is true. It's your word, Lord. You gave it to us for a purpose. So I pray that we might be more sanctified. Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Help us to be sanctified by your precious word and the spirit working in us. In Christ's name, amen.